Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osban, here with my friend, Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachi Givamot, daf Yud Gimel, page 13. Well, we're finally going to wrap up our discussion of this first Mishnah that definitely, for me at least, was some real mind-twisting uh, dapin. And finally, 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 at the end, we get to the Midrash Halakha about how do we know Ketzad Potrot Sarotehen? How do we know that they exempt uh, the, the co-wives and the co-wives of the co-wives? Right from where is this learned? Amar Rav Yehuda. Rav Yehuda says, Because the Pasuk states in Vayikra chapter 18, verse 18, uh, right, that basically you, sh- you can't take a woman to her sister to be her, literally means her rival, Litzorer. And then it comments, The, uh, the Torah amplifies or uh, increases this to include many rival wives. In other words, the word actually could have just been spelt with one race, but instead it is, uh, appears with two races. And so from there, we get the idea of not only excluding co-wives, but also excluding co-wives of a co-wife. Ravashi Amar Svarahi. So Ravashi says, no, it's more, it's, it's a Svara. It's a logical inference. So he doesn't hold by this Midrash Halakha of Rabbi Yehuda, but instead he holds by this. Now one, you know, now, uh, it, it's interesting, I find at least, that the explanation of this is a discussion amongst the Amoraim. It's not amongst the Tanaim. So I just want to point that out. And it may be that that's the reason why normally we would have this discussion appear sort of right after the Mishnah. Um, and maybe that's why it's sort of concluding, because it's not a Tanaitic Machlokas, it's a Amoraic Machlokas. And so what if Ravashi say? That it's a Sfarah, that it's just logical inference. You don't actually need a source from the Torah itself. Sarah, my Tama Asira, what's the reason that a rival wife uh, of a forbidden relative would be prohibited? Dimakom Erva Kaima, right? Because she basically stands in the place of the forbidden relative, right? In other words, the forbidden relative, the relative with the additional Erva, besides just the Erva being the brother's wife, is not going to be allowed to fulfill the mitzvah of Yibam because of the other Erva. And so therefore, this co-wife really stands in her place. Sarat, Sarah, Nami. And therefore also the co-wife of a co-wife also would stand in place, right? The Koma Erva would also stand in the place. So the idea is essentially that according to Ravashi, it makes sense. If it, the co-wife was going to stand in place of somebody who would never have been allowed to perform Yibu because of an additional Erva, then we sort of just can't allow anybody to do it. And it's more logical as opposed to having a source from the Torah. So two interesting approaches, one which wants to tie it to a pasuk. Uh, you know, in Rav Yehudas, it's cute, right? It's litzor, two rishes, so it includes co-wife and co-wife of a co-wife. And, you know, I think to me, at least, Rav Ashi's appeals to me a little bit more uh, that it's just, it's logical. If the idea is, is that the co-wife would automatically have to become the replacement, once there's an erva involved and it's replacing an erva, it's sort of like Chazal doesn't want any part of it. And again, I think this sort of, uh, shows us, and this is the thing I've really been most struck by these first 12 dapim of, uh, of Yavamos, is I don't think Chazal really embraces this mitzvah. I think there is a strong discomfort with it. That's why they start off with who's not allowed to do Yibum. Um, and even this, uh, you know, this explanation here at the end, um, you know, it's not that the source from the Torah that Rabbi Huda has, it's, it's not, you know, super clear. It's a little bit of like a cute you know, Drusha and Rabashi is basically saying you, you can't have somebody replace something that really would have been a sore because of an era. That's just sort of a logical approach to this. And so I think both of these show 
sort of this discomfort that I believe comes through in these dafim that Chazal had uh, uh, with Yibum itself. I think it's also interesting that the the cute, as you called it, the cute drasha here, you know, is the basis of like these are hefty halachot to be riding or depending on quote unquote acute drasha, as opposed to. I don't know, um, even a logical inference, right? Or the same, or maybe it's right. The the idea that there are certain principles in deriving halacha where we say we can't do this because that is not a strong enough um, way of getting to that conclusion for us to have a hefty halacha depending on it. And onshimin adin, for example, we don't um, have a, a capital punishment based on just on logic alone, right? So here to say, well, there's an extra race, so that it, it's it's. I think it hints to exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. All right. Now I think we're on to a new Mishnah. A new Mishnah. Although, and we've been waiting for this Mishnah because it's been mentioned several times in the discussion up until now. Um, it is still, however, talking about Yevamot, Yibum, and Koais. Sheish Arayot Chamurot Me'elu. There are the six women, meaning the six relations, relationships, dynamics, right, that are except for in this case, it's the women. There are six um, women whose status is an arayot, one of the illicit sexual relationships, that are more stringent or forbidden, more severe than those who are listed in that first Mishnah. What does it mean that they are, that it's more severe? Okay, so what happens? We have here that if they were married, one second, let me say this right. These six women, um, you know what? I'm going to take a step back and read, continue reading the Mishnah, and then I'll come back to explain what the more severe is. Because I think once we have a handle on who these six women are, meaning what the relationships are, then we can understand a little bit what the difference is for the Tsarotea, for the co-wives. Imo, right? So the man's mother. Eshet Aviv, the man's father's wife. Vachot Aviv, the man's paternal aunts. Achotome Aviv. Uh, his paternal, I guess this would be the half sister, right? The paternal half sister, Aviv, the wife of the brother of the father, Aviv, and the wife of the paternal again, a half brother. Meaning, so all of those are the women for whom the relationship itself is forbidden as an arayot relationship, right? In which case, yibum does not apply. And then, because yibum does not apply, meaning there is no uh, no demand for yibum for the widow of this this kind of dynamic, then the tsarot, the co-wives, are in fact permitted to marry um, any of these people, right? Meaning the dynamic is specific to the relationship, to the initial relationship. Um, I don't know if that's clear. I feel like the stringency is clear, right? The stringency is these dynamics. It's a much closer relationship, right? We're not just talking about Eshet Ach. We're talking about all the other all the other Arayot. And once those Arayot kick in, um, which makes Yibum impossible, then the co-wives are permitted. Um, I hope that's clear. Now the Gemara is going to delve into, no, I'm sorry, not Gemara, the Mishnah is going to delve into um, some of the assumptions that we have been functioning with and see that it's really a matter of machloket, we should have guessed. So, right, we've said all the way along, we've been functioning on this idea that the co-wives are forbidden, or we've talked about exempted, right, to the brothers, but Beit Shammai says that they are permitted. 
right? That Bechame or Matirin had to write that the co-wives could have married the brothers, the for the Yavam, whatever. But Beit Hill forbids it. And when we understood the first mission, it doesn't say it's the approach of Beit Hill, but lo and behold, here we see that it is only really the approach of Beit Hillel. Chaltsu. So now what happens if they did Chalitza? This is, a, I think, a pretty um, dramatic practical implication that if there was Chalitza between one of the co-wives um, of the brother, right, of the, and they're going to do Chalitza, Beit Shammai says that that same woman now is, cannot marry, a second time, cannot marry a Kohen. The same way that we nowadays think about a divorcee cannot marry a Kohen, a Choletzet, one who has had Chalitza also cannot marry, is not permitted to a Kohen. And Beit Hillel allows it, Beit Hillel allows it because, again, because the position is then that the Chalitza was not really necessary, right? Meaning, was the Chalitza necessary? If it was necessary, if it's fully valid, then you can't marry a Kohen. But because Beit Hillel says, though, they could marry a Kohen, the implication is that the Chalitza wasn't Chalitza. It didn't really count as Chalitza. It wasn't necessary. What if they did Yibum? If they actually did Yibum, then Beit Shammai would say that they're, um, then they can marry a Kohen afterwards, whatever, right? Because again, the claim is that this is a full Yibum and it would be fine. And because Beit Hillel said that they shouldn't be marrying the, the they shouldn't be married as co-wives, they're disqualified, according to Beit Hillel, then it ends up being that they're the, the implication is that the relation that they had with the Yavam was, you know, inappropriate, let's say. it's It turns into something that is treated as licentiousness, and therefore, that would not be, uh, that would not, that would render the wife, the co-wife, um, not valid to marry a Kohen. Okay. Um, so there are real implications for other future relationships in this difference of approach between Behil and Beit it is not a theoretical difference. I mean, it all nowadays it would be, but back in the day. And this is perhaps the most interesting and the most important element that's aside from the halacha itself of this Mishnah. Why so? Because it says even though Beit Hillel prohibited these dynamics and Beit Shammai permitted them, and even though Beit Shammai, you know, would um, negate, would disqualify these women and Beit Hillel would um, say they were fine, right? At the end of the day, the, they didn't say that we have here situations where the women cannot marry, where the people of Beit Shammai and the people of Beit Hillel could not marry each other. Why is this so important? Because very often this, the, these cases, meaning these permissive, forbidden and permitted cases of the of the co-wives are exactly where you would think you would end up with situations of mamzerut, right? Where children born of illicit relationships, or you would end up thinking that, you know, if one is puzzled to a Kohen, then what happens to the Beit Hillel guy who wants to marry the Beit Shammai woman? Like you end up with a real, you would think you would end up with a real um, division in, I would say lifestyle, right? In terms of saying, we don't marry you. And um, the point here is, that they did. They did marry them. They, they, as much as they had very practical, different halachic approaches, it did not get in the way of the social dynamic between the two schools of thought. And likewise, 
you know, even when they had differences of approach, again, between Tumantara, ritual purity and impurity, and you would think, again, that it would get in the way, because if it, if this is Tame and this is Tahor, vice versa, then you can't follow through in your regular, you know, your regular handling of things. And in the end of the day, Beit Shammai and Beit Hill used each other's vessels. They socialized, you know, to whatever extent that might, whatever that really meant in, in their world, they did not let the stigma, they did not let there be stigma between the two groups, despite the fact that there was a very different halachic approach. I feel like this is so refreshing and and revolutionary compared to our current era where people do not necessarily accept the shitot, the approaches of the other. Um, and there's a lot of different, I mean, there's some good reasons why our society today is different. I, I, you know, I could talk about that at a different time, but right now I'm just pleased the way to which you would think this would be truly a chasm of a gap between the two schools of thought, and they didn't let it affect their personal, interpersonal relationships. This Mishnah appears also, a similar Mishnah appears in a joke, um, but this is like a common that they somehow really managed to get along with each other, even though they had disagreements about things that actually had to do with status of Mamzeris, as we'll see on tomorrow's stop. This wasn't just a like, oh, I think you could do Yibum or you would do Chalitza. This really had tremendous halakhic implications. And we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about that tomorrow. But I just want to sort of set up uh, discussion just by beginning uh, the, the end of this Amud. And here they sort of bring a very interesting, uh, uh, they bring a Mishnah here. And it's, it's really, it's the first Mishnah of Masach and Megillah, actually. Right, so those of you who are Megillah, remember that we learned this, that the Megillah could basically be read on the 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, or 15th of Adar. And that's essentially uh, what this is. So that it wasn't really done on a particular day, but for a variety of reasons, which we won't get into the details of now. Uh, there was a lot of variability about when the Megillah could actually be read. Amr le Reish Lakish. So Reish Lakish poses the following question, Rabbi Yochanan. Ikre kan lo tit go do. So he says, I should read here, and there's a very famous pasuk in Devarim, chapter four, one, that's cut yourself. Now what that pasuk is literally talking about is that you should not cut yourself over your dead. You shouldn't make sort of these marks that people would make uh, while in mourning. Um, but he reads this a little bit differently, right? He's go to do, uh, and we'll see later on how they get to this because there's a double dalit here, very similar and interesting uh, to what we saw with the double rage. Lotesu that you should not make factions and factions. It should remind you of the Gemara that I told everybody was my famous Gemara in Chagiga Daf Gimel, where Rabbi Elizabeth Benazaria talks about all the agudot. Right, all the different groups, one saying something was pasul, one saying something was kosher. And basically, what Rachel Lekish is saying is that this halacha of lotit go to do is teaching us that we can make different factions. In other words, we need to be united and we sort of all need to act as we should be sort of one halacha. We shouldn't be doing all different things. And that's one of the problems with this mission in Megillah is that how could it be that we would read the Megillah on all these different days? Hi, lotit go to do me, baile le this, which says do not cut yourself, is is required for the literally for itself. 
right? Because uh, God says, right? Do not cut yourself over the dead, right? So now they're explaining how do they get this from So the question is, why does the Pesach go to do? So we can learn from this, right? That it comes to teach us also uh, about this idea of, of of splitting, right? So maybe the whole verse should have just said, uh, you know, uh, so if so, right? Just the, 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 sorry, but if that's the case, say that the entire verse just comes to teach this and doesn't talk about the cutting of the dead at all, it just talks about this concept of the agudot. Then the puzzle should read Lotago do with one dalit. My Lotids go to do Shmamine Charte. So as the two dalits, we learn from this that it actually has uh it actually has uh, two um meaning to it. So tomorrow we'll spend a little bit more time uh talking about this famous, you know, Hillel. But the question that Rachel Lucky just basically here is essentially Right? What do we do with this concept of loti go to do? The idea that we're not supposed to have factions, that we're really supposed to be united. And is this in a way in a reflection of that, right? That even though a and Hillel really had different viewpoints about Yibam and Chalita in the case that our Mishnah here discusses with the six sort of more stringent Yisurim, what does it actually mean practically for how the halakha was actually practiced? And we'll see tomorrow that there's a few different ways of how this is discussed, right? Did maybe one side just follow the other side? Uh, or did they actually follow their own halakha, but how did that practically take place when there was actually a discussion about Mamzera? So this is sort of a coming attraction for tomorrow. But this is really, to me at least, a great Gemara that sort of gets weeds. Uh, how is this that? Like this mission is a beautiful mission that gets quote, quoted often, but when we look at the Gemara, we're going to see, like, how is this practically done? Because it's always easy to say, like, oh, everybody should get along, kumbaya. But the Gemara is going to really understand tomorrow's app that complicated, sort of getting along with each other uh, than it actually seems, you know, than sort of, they're not willing to just pay it lip service. So there's this rule in, like, education and speci specifically things like language education that the important things come around again, right? Like, if you miss it the first time, don't worry. You'll learn that grammar rule or vocabulary or whatever the next time around. And I feel like the machluk you know, between Beit Hill and Beit Shammai and the relationship, the dynamic between them and all of this, I think it's exactly that kind of thing, right? It pops up, and we've talked about it here and there over the past two years, and I'm sure we will again over the next, you know, five years coming, whatever. Um, I think this is the source of a good amount of it, right? Because this is the most dramatic potential for a faction, you know, real factionalization in terms of marriages, right? Like that's about as extreme as you can get to say, we won't marry you, but they didn't. So I feel like, oh good, it came around again. Um, and this is a time that we're gonna delve that much more into it as I mean tomorrow. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Ring us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend E. Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hodger website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.